0: cyber has had this role, that it's largely been a tool of subversion, it's largely been an intelligence contest, it's largely been the strategic competition below the level of armed attack. Once these geopolitical conditions start changing, once cyber conflict is played over increasingly existential stakes, take colonial pipeline, all of a sudden states might start behaving differently.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Manning it's Eye on Security podcast. I'm your host, Luke McNamara. Joining me today, we have Jason Healy. Jason is a senior research scholar at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, specializing in cyber conflict, competition, and cooperation. Prior to this, he was the founding director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council, where he remains a senior fellow. He was the editor of the first history of, of conflict in cyberspace, A Fierce Domain, and co-author of the book Cybersecurity Policy Guidebook by Wiley. He also served as Director for Cyber Infrastructure Protection at the White House from 2003 to 2005. He's worked for Goldman Sachs, FSISAC, and the United States Air Force. Jay, great to have you here today. Happy Friday.
0: Thank you very much and happy holidays to all.
1: So I thought maybe where we could uh, begin. You know, you have uh, spent uh, a lot of your career being involved in and looking at and, and taking part in cyber policy discussion. And so I'm curious to maybe we can start with just your perspective of how that has evolved, where we sit kind of right now, presently, when it comes to discussions around cyber policy, looking at how things have been adopted from the Cyberspace Solarium uh, Commission, and the sort of general discussion that's kind of led us to this point. What does that look like right now? And where have kind of we come to get to this point?
0: It's pretty amazing that we're almost 25 years into United States cyber policy making. President Clinton signed out the first uh, directive, it was called PDD-63, in 1998. So uh, we're well along. And in a lot of ways, you see what they had talked about in 1998. And you say, those are the same problems we have today. So it's pretty easy to get frustrating. And that was the last strategy we really wrote that included dates. Because like, it said, like, within three years, we'll, ha- we'll have this stuff solved. Right? <laughs> you know, within five years, critical infrastructure is just going to be totally safe. Now, we don't use that anymore <laughs> because we would always be missing them. On the other hand, you look at it and, and you see how much we have, we have accomplished, right? They were proposing in 1998 that information sharing might be a good thing and we should have some things like ISACs, Information Sharing and Analysis Centers. You know, we, we did that. We, we, we've advanced that. In 1998, CISOs were almost a brand new thing. We'd only invented CISOs in 1995 after Citibank got hit. For $10 million by a Russian hacker named Vladimir Levin. So, in, even though it feels like we haven't made progress, there has been substantial progress. If you look at the most recent executive order that came out in the Biden administration, 14028, it is incredibly detailed, right? It is a computer security dream of the kinds of things that's in that compared to the policies that went in before right? Software bill of materials, um, uh, zero trust, really all of these things that were encapsulated the conversation over the past few years of the computer security community, you are now seeing in White House documents in ways that I don't think that you had
1: before. And, and one of the things, I guess, around that as well, you know, you, there's the side of the, the policy discussions around the things that we need to secure, things that we need to address both in the public sector and private sector and, and ways policy seeks to, to do that one of the inputs obviously into that equation is what's happening in the threat landscape itself. So again thinking about from more the perspective of where I sit at Mandiant and seeing sometimes where there's a a delta between what's happening in the threat landscape and then the conversation, the lag it sometimes takes for the larger discussion to kind of catch up to the problems that are then being discussed in sort of the policy making community or even just the larger general discussion overall. Are there certain areas now where you think that we've, we've kind of closed those gaps a little bit, or we've done a better job at discussing the actual, you know, policy solutions to address the things that are actually occurring? And I think back to, you know, some of the, even the APT activity five, six years ago from China, there was some discussion around, you know, theft of IP, but I think it kind of took a while for it to, to make its way into maybe some of the larger, again, broader discussions and, and, and spaces that people were having, were thinking about this outside of InfoSec. Um, Now, it seems like when you look at ransomware, for example, that is a threat that very quickly has elevated itself up into that space where policymakers and others are are thinking about and proposing solutions to that. So do you see that Delta closing or are we we doing a better job of having more complete discussions? Absolutely. That gap has
0: closed substantially. And in part, that's because of the activities the threats are doing. Right. It was relatively easy to not talk much about the China threat because it was diffuse and it was commercial espionage and things that companies didn't want to complain about. And now we have ransomware, which is right there in your face. It's pretty immediately public or or more public. And it's hugely disruptive, as we saw with Colonial. And so part of that's just the activities that the threat is doing. But also, the government is doing a lot better in getting out of its own way and thinking about what it about what needs to get done and then doing it. Some of that's because of the efforts of Mandiant and the listeners of this podcast and the others that are doing attribution, but not entirely. For example, we knew that China was conducting substantial operations as early as 2001. By 2003, 2004. Some of that activity was really hitting in the press. Names like Titan Rain, Byzantine Hades was starting to pop up. It wasn't until something like 2011 that we actually went to the Chinese and said, we are upset with this activity and would like it to stop. Right. So think about that. A full decade from when we were starting to see this activity before we even went to them and said, we don't like this kind of thing, knock it off. And that's substantially because we were treating it as counter-espionage kinds of activities, right? It was uh, was taken over by that sub-community and say, well, you never want to tell the other side that you know what they know, what you know, and it's a wilderness of mirrors. And so we really got in our own way on that. So now, right, soon after an event, right, how long was it from when we saw the the Chinese hafnium Microsoft hacks until you just we didn't just know that it was China doing it. And we weren't just calling out China, but there was an official White House statement coordinated with other countries, not just saying that China did this and it's wrong and we don't like it but that it's wrong, and in fact, it goes against President Xi Jinping's own statements about what they would, uh, about the norms that they would look at. And I'd like to highlight that point. I still hear it said, even by people who should know better, that there are no norms. There are no globally agreed-to norms. That was maybe true in, well, that was probably true in 2014. It was already less true in 2015, and it's definitely not true now. And it's one of the most important areas of progress in 2021 because we had two separate UN groups, one that was more US led and one that was more Russia led, that agreed to a bunch of norms. That basically the entire UN General Assembly, all of the nations of the world, have said, boy, you know, commercial espionage for profit, attacking critical infrastructure during peacetime have said these things are what we need to avoid. Now our problem is going to be going from agreeing to the norms to how are we going to enforce them. And of course that's going to be a lot tougher challenge for US policy going forward.
1: So do you see that as being something that is very much dependent on the type of activity? So when we look at the the problems that we face today, look like at problems of cyber espionage both for sort of traditional uh, military diplomatic information advantage, but also for economic gain, um, as we've seen historically from China. We look at problems around disinformation. We look at problems around ransomware. Often these are very sort of complex and, and diverse problems. Um, there can be overlap between them, overlap amongst the actors that may be involved in them. But for the establishment of norms and looking at you know how long it took for us to get to sort of norms around some types of activity that you know do seem to now have stronger norms built up around that do you see areas where you think we are maybe increasing the speed at which we are kind of solidifying and cementing those norms on an international level and maybe others where it's going to be harder to to get general consensus around
0: without a doubt right when and this is very much on the adversaries for being so reckless and brazen when it was relatively quiet attacks that were only attacking one company at a time, albeit with many such attacks happening, uh, intrusions happening at the same time, it was harder for like minded nations to come together and say, this is BS, we've got to stop this. When you've got the ransomware attacks, you've got NotPetya, you've got WannaCry. It's become a lot easier for the United States to say, all right, let's start getting behind this when the United States says, okay, we need to do disruptive operations. We need to be uh, hacking Bitcoin wallets. We need to be, there might've been countries that would have been more upset about that, but we've got a lot more support for that going on now. The one part that, well, amongst the parts that threw me off is the United States was pretty clear about the things that were 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 black and white, you know, where where it's okay and where it's not okay. And where we've really confused that is with the response to solar winds, right? Absolutely, we should be upset about solar winds that that it happened, that we didn't find out about it so uh, for so long until, until Mandiant discovered it, that... Uh, the Such one-on-multitude attacks are still relatively easy or, or can happen in that we find about it so late. But the position of the Biden administration and others that somehow this was espionage that was beyond the pale and, and could not be acceptable um, and was especially disruptive and destabilizing, I, I didn't quite get where, where we were going with that argument.
1: Right. Sort of saying, you know, this is reckless in part because it could have been something that led to attack versus just, you know, traditional exp- espionage.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I, I can see the argument that's been made there. We had never made it before. And it wasn't quite clear to me if we were going to weigh that versus the, the stability, like the erosion of trust that came around the world after the Snowden revelations. And saying, "All right, well, I understand why we kind of want to privilege one versus the others, but I'm not sure I have to buy that argument." And they never really quite made the made the arguments in in a way that I think was quite quite clear enough. Based on we had been saying, like, how many times I've had people say, "Look, spy is going to spy. What are you going to do about it?" Right. And that was fine when it was Snowden revolution, you know, when it was Snowden stuff. For the rest, but then when the other side, well, spy versus spy. And now the caveats come. Yeah, It's spy versus spy. Well, unless it's going to give you privileged access. Well, well we were on the backbone, right? We had, we had, that gave us a lot of access to do a lot of stuff um, that we never took advantage of, just like they had access to a lot of stuff that they didn't take advantage of. And I'm not trying to make, a, I'm certainly not trying to make a moral equivalence. I'm not trying to make a national security equivalence. There could have been arguments that were made in a much better way than they had been to just start
1: taking away these, these points. Well, one of the things you mentioned earlier that I I, I think could segue us into talking about this a little bit more is um, escalation risk. I know this is something that you spent a lot of time thinking about, but when kind of shifting away from the establishment of, of norms around what is and isn't in bounds for different types of activity, then also contemplating, you know, I think historically you could argue you know, from from all accounts, the U.S. has been fairly um, more restrained in the usage of the capabilities it has in this space. You know, with good reason, given how, how much of a target our digital economy and way of life and everything kind of presents itself, and the fragility we see there. But is that area is that still an area that potentially we are discounting the 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 aspect of risk there? That in a time of conflict or close to or increasing conflict you know however you want to frame that that there's still a possibility that things could escalate a lot faster than we anticipate
0: yeah without a doubt because and we can unpack that in a few different ways first is restraint and the united states has not acted with restraint or without as much restraint as we think when it comes to disruptive military operations Absolutely, what we would say, Title Title Ten in Washington D.C. Right? Absolutely, we've been at when it comes to disruptive operations, especially military operations. Incredible restraint. Um, there have been very few operations. But when they have, they've been conducted according to the laws of war, the laws of armed conflict, international and international humanitarian law, and we've even been modestly transparent about them afterwards such as Operation Glowing Symphony, the strike against Islamic State, where Cyber Command was stunningly out there talking to NPR and others about exactly what we did and, to a substantial degree, how. This well, was Task Force Ares? Uh, yes. Okay. I mean, if you haven't read the, 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 the NPR article by, by Dina Templerast, and it goes into incredible detail from the, from the four-star level on down to the actual planners and operators... We haven't had that restraint on the Title 50 side, on the covert action and the espionage. And it's easy for us on our side to say, well, that's a different thing. But our adversaries don't necessarily see that as a different thing. Vladimir Putin is, or it seems pretty convinced that the US is trying to conduct information operations to incite color revolutions in former Soviet states and in the former War, Warsaw Pact, he seemed convinced that the Panama Papers, which was the release of damaging financial information that was showing corruption and, and hiding of money, was a U.S. covert operation directed at him personally, which was in part of that was in the, uh, in the intelligence community assessment after the 2016 election interference. right? So a lot of our adversaries are sure they're hitting back rather than hitting first. In the case of Iran, it's almost certainly true. There are a lot of statements, including by senior military cyber officials, that Iran was largely focused internally with their cyber capabilities to look at dissidents until the Stuxnet attack. And then, oh, that's the way the game is played, right? So, so let's not get too carried away with, with, the, with, the, with the restraint argument here. And think about all right. How are our adversaries seeing this activity? Right. Remember, this is existential for them as well. So, where um, my broader concern is that the game that we think we're playing in cyber is persistent engagement. Right. It's getting out there. It's disrupting them. It's ca- it's causing friction. And I think that's right. I right? mean, I I I actually like defend forward. I like the action uh, the the broad set of actions that the United States and its allies have been engaging in. But that game only lasts when the stakes are relative, still relatively low in cyberspace, when there's not a large set of crises going on that might lead to war. And so those conditions are starting to change, right? If we look back at, oh, we'll take 2000, no, actually let's take 2000, the year 2000 and say, For the last 20 years, it's been relatively low stakes. There haven't been that many crises between major powers that might lead to war. And so cyber has had this role that it's largely been a tool of subversion. It's largely been an intelligence contest. It's largely been the strategic competition below the level of armed attack. Once these geopolitical conditions start changing, once cyber conflict is is played over increasingly existential stakes take Colonial Pipeline, all of a sudden states might start behaving differently and say, oh, that's how it's going to be okay. You're going to do that. We're going we're to we're up the stakes back at you. The more that we've done Internet of Things and cyber physical, more likely that these attacks are going to start causing casualties or maybe slip out of control. And the more that we have increasing crises, right, if we're getting into great power competition, the phrase that's, I think, still de rigueur in Washington, D.C., right? You're going to see more crises and face-offs between the United States and Russia, U.S., China, Iran, North Korea. During those crises, we can expect the United States and those competitors are going to be more willing to take risks. And so instead of just using cyber for subversion, right, to, you know, to, you know, do little punches, you know, little, little stabs, they might end up trying to go for a real haymaker, for a real strong attack that one side or the other is just going to have to respond to. And maybe there'd been 10, they've pulled off 10 attacks like that in the past. Like either us doing it to them or them doing it to us. And the leaders of those countries said, yeah, you know what, no big deal. We'll, we'll, We'll ignore it this time. But because there is now a crisis, they decide that this is an attack that demands an escalation.
1: Where do you think attribution falls or plays into that? Because I think one you know thinking back to um, you know what you're referencing earlier about the hafni and stuff and the swiftness that you saw governments come out and denounce that, not just the United States but internationally, but also thinking back to both wanna cry and not and that those both took place in an era where there was a lot more reticence, um, a lot more due diligence that governments seemed to kind of want to employ before coming out publicly and saying, we believe this is north korea we believe this is russia etc and that makes sense it makes sense that you would see you know potentially infosec researchers and vendors being more willing to to say that you know first but now we do seem to be in an era where you have governments that are very quick to to do that to, to come out and attribute activity and in some part that seems to make then the policy response a lot easier because I think when there's those lags, you know, of months potentially between when an activity happens, when it gets called out and attributed to a foreign government or entity, it could potentially kind of weaken the the force behind, well, what do we do next? How do we respond to this? So how do you see that kind of playing out where now obviously you have a lot of people looking at when there's a, a large disruptive attack and you can see the impacts of that, you know, everyone's eyes in this entire space are kind of on that but also the government's willingness to kind of come out, show their cards and potentially link that to an entity. How does that sort of play in this sort of escalation situation?
0: Yeah, I anticipate that, you I mean, cyber has been, attribution has been, you know, for a long time it was a, it was a side issue, right? People could say, ah, attribution doesn't, doesn't matter so much. And that was especially true when cyber was played for especially low stakes. And right, it has been relatively low stakes. Most, most cyber attacks are bad, but they're not, you know, national security bad of the kind of things that we normally think about a cross-border armed attack, right? It's not tanks across the border bad, most of them. As, that, as those stakes are increasing, right, this is uh, the, the role of attribution and the role of misattribution and speedy attribution, I think, are going to pop up a lot. And it, it's easy in the United States in being on a Mandiant podcast to remember that there's to one, remember the days when attribution did take a really long time and how much easier attribution is now. But there's a huge attribution gap, right? If you're if you're in the United States and you're listening to a Mandiant podcast, there's a good chance that you're in a state that finds attribution a lot easier than it used to used to be. But for a lot of countries around the world, that's just not true, right? The United States, a few of our allies, a few are able to do this, Mandian, a few, you know, a few other companies are able to operate at or near your level, but really how many? And so you just imagine the, the number of countries, including China, North Korea, Iran, Russia to some degree that are substantially lacking compared to the United States in attribution, much less to say, well, what about Brazil, Nigeria, South Africa, you know, Ecuador, Thailand, Vietnam, right? Even some states in there that are increasing cyber players that aren't able to do attribution. So when we think about this attribution, what attribution is gonna mean for escalation in a crisis, let's think about, well, what if it's not US in the crisis, right, what if it's about Armenia and Azerbaijan, in Russia, or or Belarus, or someone wants to do a false flag attack, um, or if it's China and Taiwan, and someone wants to do a false flag attack to stir to stir the pot there, um, India, Pakistan um, have had substantial cyber dustups in the past, and the leadership will have a harder time resisting the headlines that scream cyber war because they got attacked, and they don't have the time or maybe even the inclination to wait for a Mandiant or a NSA or Cyber Command to come in and say, no, give us another week, and we, we're pretty we're pretty sure this wasn't your rival that did this to you, but wait a little bit. So in those situations, you can really see how the att- attribution gaps and false flags that otherwise would be... Re- relatively easily detectable by solid analysts, those false flags might, might cause a lot more harm than they might otherwise. Especially if we're in real crises where we don't have a week or two weeks to allow the process to spit out the answer of who this likely was. But the president needs to know right now or the head of state needs to know right now, was this a false flag? Was this a low level attack? Or was this the opening shot of a, of the war, right? Was this the, you know, was this the Pearl Harbor attack? And this is, this is the zeros inbound to Pearl Harbor. Or is this um, just something that the president needs to ignore? And yes, I just unapologetically made
1: a a cyber Pearl Harbor reference, and I'm standing by it. Excellent. Don't back down. I was going to say, though, you could imagine in any of those situations that you you gave examples of where you have sort of longstanding tensions that could boil over into some conflict, um, but where maybe there's maybe a lesser amount of of technical know-how and aptitude around attribution in a situation where you have a crisis, where an event has taken place, where a cyber attack has taken place there may not be the political will if yeah. the public sentiment is that this is our traditional adversary who did this, you know, forget whatever the facts may be, or, you know, a lack of patience to kind of wait for that to come out. I mean, this, this seems like, I guess part of this, my, my question around this is, you know, when you're talking about norms, and you're talking about um escalation risk, when you're talking about crises, you're talking about events taking place in a very short period of time. And so... For one piece of this, it may be sort of like what is in in and out of bounds Um, and how do norms develop around, you know, we can anticipate there's going to be a lot of interesting and, you know, a lot of interesting policy questions that are going to come out of some of these potential crises down the road. And you can get into some of these dilemmas around escalation. But I guess one aspect of this is how do the norms around what is in and out of bounds sort of evolve? In those time uh, frames, when those crises are unfolding, then are there ways to kind of constrain that ahead of time?
0: I think we, we put a little bit too much pressure on norms if we were to do that and expect norms to uh, to do all of those uh, to do all of those things. But there there is lots of other things that we can do. Some of them fall under diplomacy. Some not. For example, uh, here at Columbia, I remember we had the head of the air war over Syria. And he would talk about the ins and the outs of being on the hotline that he had to with his Russian Air Force counterpart in Syria. So that they could help make sure that, uh, to help reduce the chances and likelihood of mistakes and miscalculation. And we don't really have such things on cyber. And wouldn't it be nice if we could try and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um... You went too far here list. Like, yeah, there's one that happens at the White House level that we used after the 2016 election, but that's the political level. That's not the operational level. CISA has one of these with China and others, but that's at like the cert to cert level. Useful for the technologists, but not, not for, the, uh, for the war fighters. Less operationally relevant, but still useful are the back channels, right? There is a, there's a retired um, Chinese general... That is quite active in talking to our retired generals. And that's the kind of thing that we need, right, is for her and to talk to our, our side and to, to, to be able to get some of that trust happening in the, we call them track 1.5 or track 2 discussions, like not, not State Department to um, directly to the Chinese government, but these back channels that can happen, especially between the generals, but also between others. So that we can try and work through some of these um, miscomprehensions in general, these other ways of signaling to use the term that we would say in international relations. So that uh, when you do have these mistakes and miscalculations, the other side is able to say "Uh, you you hit us hard, but you didn't mean it so. Uh, we can calibrate our response back in a way that will make you regret it, but not make you feel that you have to then up the game against us once more. Uh, And especially in a non-U.S. context. Well, another way that we think about this in international relations is peacemaking or peacekeeping, right? Peacemaking is about these two states are fighting in a way that is spilling out and affecting global peace, So what is the rest of the world, especially via the UN Security Council, going to do to minimize this impact to global peace between this conflict, right? And in cyber, well, what can the UN do? What can any state do? We can't separate cyber combatants in any meaningful way that we could say between Armenia and Azerbaijan. But let's imagine Armenia and Azerbaijan are having a cyber fight. And it's affecting world peace. So states can't do much about that. The UN can't do much about that. But maybe Microsoft and Google and the telecommunications carriers might. Right There's actually something that we could look at and say, is there a way you could get the legitimacy of the UN paired with those companies that actually might be able to squelch this fight um, you know, what would Mandiant's role be in that and to separate the combatants or to make sure that their attacks don't uh, affect others in the way that, say, not Petcha did. So I think there's a lot more exploration that we can do that goes beyond just thinking about norms.
1: So outside of preparing to have you know, systems in place or, or dialogue channels in place, understanding in a time of crisis or conflict what those different levers might be to kind of lower the heat or affect things in some way what are things that you potentially anticipate kind of looking down the road that maybe should be given more consideration for uh, in terms of situations that could be destabilizing you know and one example i might kind of throw out there is i wonder well, one thing i've been thinking about a lot this last year obviously with the, the rise of ransomware is, is there more that we should have done to anticipate that obviously ransomware itself is not new but is there more that we should have done to anticipate the certain environment that we are in and starting to see you know examples and i think iran's a great example of this where states would start or state state connected actors would start employing that that capability right the fact that state actors like iran have been active in Offensive cyber operations of some kind for a while is not new. ransomware itself is not new, but seeing those actors start to employ or adopt those techniques. And I know you know some of us have written about how state actors could use ransomware you know for some time. but again, I wonder if the particulars of the current moment that we're in with ransomware, you know largely on the criminal side, but also where we could increasingly see state players dabble in that. You know, is there stuff that we should have maybe done a better job of anticipating? And are there things that you look at and say, you know, we should be anticipating this now or be thinking about this now?
0: Yeah, the um, have a I had done a paper with my colleague, Robert Jervis, who you might have even taken some classes with here at Columbia SEPA. And amongst the thing we talked about in that paper was how surprise plays such an incredible role in cyber conflict much more so than in conflict in the air, land, sea, and space. Uh, we argued, you know, not just, you know, pretty much by definition, every cyber attack is going to be a surprise because it's using zero days or, you know, it's using deception. Um, but cyber encourages surprise attacks. I mean, we were just constantly surprised again and again and again, as you had suggested. And yet we don't include surprise as something that, like if you look at the military strategies and doctrine, it doesn't show up at all. And it doesn't show up in the national strategies, even though we are constantly getting surprised, even on things we know are going to happen, right? The Estonians knew in 2007 that the attack was coming. And yet constantly we are surprised by the who, the how hard, the when of the matter. So I do think there's a lot that we can be looking at to try and minimize that, right? More war games that are out exploring how things might be different. Thinking about, like I see this a lot on the academic side, we say cyber is like this or is like that. Cyber is, you know, cyber is played for low stakes. Cyber is about subversion, not coercion, and not imagining how that's going to be different when states really care about an existential issue rather than the low stakes we've been arguing about over the past so I think it's a it's a really important point that we better prepare ourselves for surprise and on the on the overall now and I think that that's hard right it's when cyber touches absolutely everything it's underpinning the economy and society of almost literally everything it's 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 impossible to try and guess where, where the blow is gonna land, right? Your, your imagination can't be limitless. And as you know, the federal government learned, you can defend yourself as much as you want, but if they can get you through solar winds, well, again, so there's only so, much, there's only so much we can expect of defenders, and there's only so much we can expect of defenders' imagination, which is why I really focus on getting defense better than offense. Uh, especially at the level, at the systemic level, at the level of the internet itself. You had mentioned that history book that I wrote a few years ago, where I came across this quote that said, few if any contemporary security controls can stop a dedicated red team from easily accessing any information sought. Right, you know, we all know that we can all go to RSA and hear that said a ton of times that the red team is going to get through but it also means that the attacker, that the offense is going to get through, that the attacker has the advantage. That quote was from 1979, right? So for over 40 years, the attacker has been able to get through. And so why does anybody even listen to us as cyber defenders anymore when we haven't fundamentally changed that relationship between defense and attack? So I think that should be our only goal, well, not our only goal, but our primary goal as defenders. What can we do at scale so that defenders have the easier time, right? So that we've got the easier position, so that we are on the higher ground with the suns to our back. And we can do that, right? It is achievable. And it's achievable through things that work at scale. When we asked a lot of, um, this was work done by our New York Cyber Task Force a few years ago, and the word we came up with leverage. Where can we, what are the, innovations that will give the defender the greatest advantage over attackers at the largest scale and least cost. And so when we asked a lot of the cybersecurity professionals, what, what was it that ha- what have been the innovations that have done that? They were like Windows update, end-to-end encryption. These things that instead of having to you know buy and deploy one widget that you then have to, you know buy a billion of them, deploy a billion of them, train people, Keep them updated. You can do it once and it helps a billion. Now, there's other things like information sharing fit into that. Like information sharing at scale is one of those that fits in. The creation of ISACs, um, the attack framework, and the kill chain, right? Heck, that's just an idea. It's a doctrine. And just look at how much it's been able to help us on defense to just
1: have this idea of the attack framework or the kill chain. Yeah, in one of the recent episodes we did, I was talking with some of the um, some of the folks here on our Vuln team, and they were talking about. And I'm going to mess this up. I can't remember if it was Java or Adobe, but one of these pieces of software that went from being one of the most widely exploited, you know, things that we saw the most CVEs for, to some, you know, one small improvement or change that the 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 code developers made that dropped sort of future exploitation of that particular platform or, or uh, piece of software dramatically going forward. Yeah, and that right. was a sort of Archimedes lever that completely changed the landscape of what we now like see, you know, in terms of exploitation. Now there's obviously new challenges have to deal with and there's other pieces of software and other platforms that are going to have those phones that um, get more wide widespread exploitation. But I think that is, you know, if we're, if we're looking for maybe like more promising silver linings and things. Stories like that, or examples like that, I think are, are useful to point to, that maybe be tied yeah. to what you're saying. Taking taking away
0: entire classes of attacks, right? Giving, you know, reducing the complexity for, for the individual defenders so they so they have a better time. And, right, so that, to tie it back to some of the other things we talked about, right? That reduces the scope of surprise. It narrows the channels the attacker can uh, can come in and reduces the surprise. It, it reduces the likelihood and magnitude of attack, right? It just it, and by doing that, you lessen the escalatory risk, because if states no longer feel quite so vulnerable to a surprise attack or to any attack or campaign, then they need less reason to be trigger happy with their own, right? In the nuclear age, we called this attack on warning, right? That. Boy, if we just suspected the other side had launched their nukes, then you had to launch your nukes right away. We were able to back down from attack on warning to go to what is attack on impact. Like, no, let's wait till we actually absorb a punch and we know this isn't a false positive. Then we can go ahead and launch. But that took trust. That took more stability to bring things down. So getting defense better than offense or working towards that not only helps the individual defenders, but reduces the chances of escalation across all of cyberspace between states.
1: Well, Jay, I think that's a fantastic point to end on, in part because it's late on a Friday, and I don't want to take up any more of your time standing between you and the weekend. But thank you so much for for coming on. And for folks interested in learning more about some of the things that you're researching and writing, where can they find you?
0: Oh, yes. Um, I'm up here at Columbia University School of International Public Affairs and have had uh, pieces coming out on uh, and Lawfare and other places. And so hopefully you'll, your readership will like them.
1: And Twitter too. Where's your, I, I'm blanking oh, yes. your, your Twitter handle. Yep. Uh, Jason underscore Healy, I believe. Excellent. Well, thank you again and uh, have a great weekend. Thank care.